think we all deal with and an issue we deal with on a daily basis. Um, that we don't live just in a celebrity takedown culture. We live in a takedown culture. People will find anything about you and twist it to where it's weird or wrong or annoying or, or strange or bad. You have to not only live your life in spite of people who, who don't understand you, you have to have more fun than they do. <laughs> I like that. That's a great way to look at it. everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Today I thought I'd drop an episode a little early and do one of my favorite pastimes here at the Be There in 5 podcast, which is, of course, deep dive a Taylor Swift album. I started this podcast in 2018, and a lot of Taylor's albums came out before then, so I only can really reanalyze them in the context of a re-record. But I actually thought, you know what? While I'm excited for the Vault Songs of 1989, and I'll do that on Patreon as we do per tradition, maybe as a primer to get us like excited for 1989 coming out tonight, we just like review some background, how it was made, talk about the songs, the lyrics, I don't know, the whole 1989 yards, if you will, just because this is one of my personal favorite albums that I find that is not always like at the top of most Swifties list. I, maybe it's too poppy. Maybe it's too commercial. I don't know. But I'm a pop girly. The mainstream is my lazy river. I don't always need depth, but also sometimes depth can be found in the most surface level of places. And sometimes a gal just needs an outlet to talk about new romantics for 23 minutes, you know? And I feel like this is a safe space among Swifties where I can do that. So yeah, today we'll just, I just want to talk about 1989, given it was a rebirth for T. Swift as she ventured into pop music entirely. And given it was just like a very fun era of pop culture that even though a lot of people disliked the squad goals of it all, I ate up every minute of it. Also that mashup, how fun was that? It, it's called 1989 Era Mega Mashup by Tim underscore music on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, I live for a mashup. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining me. And again, if it's after Friday afternoon and you want to know my thoughts on the vault songs, go to patreon.com slash be there in five. Sorry for the paywall, but I don't have YouTube or I don't, you know, use YouTube. And I, I like the safe space. <laughs> I like that we can talk in the comment thread. But I mean, what's really exciting about this? I mean, one of the many things that's exciting is she said that the in an Instagram caption that the vault songs are like so insane. I'll read the direct quote later. But like that she's the most excited about this re-record, which I'm interested in because I actually, with the exception of I Can See You, I don't really replay the Speak Now vault songs much at all. Actually, in general, I'm trying to think, do I like really go hard for any vault songs besides Mr. Perfectly Fine, Better Man? I liked I'll Bet You Think About Me, but I don't really regularly play it. All too well, 10 minute version, obviously. But four out of the five vault songs, I believe, are her and Jack Antonoff. And while, you know, there are hits and misses with any collaborator, Jack Antonoff doing my favorite song of all time in the history of the world, Out of the Woods, makes me hopeful that maybe we'll get something like that again. I'm, I'm here for the way he, like, layers noises and does booming choruses and, like, songs can build 
And I know I've long referred to The Archer as a giant blue ball of a song, and I do stand by that because it builds and it almost you just like want it to release and it never does. I think a lot of times what Taylor's doing with him is trying to make songs sound like how they felt and she wanted Out of the Woods to feel like anxiety. And I think for me, you know, I'm so unique as a person with anxiety. Okay, real fast. Do you know anyone who doesn't have anxiety? (laughs) Or like, do we just need to refine the definition of it? I kind of, it's like a thing that's important to talk about because I think for a lot of people can be incredibly debilitating and is is a medical condition. And like, yes, we need to normalize conversations about anxiety. But anxiety, I think, has almost gotten conflated with like general nervousness in a way that like, in college, I'd I'd be like, Ugh, I'm so depressed because I couldn't like, I don't know, afford a pair of true religions. But like, I was, at, meanwhile, I was like actually depressed, but didn't know it because I didn't understand like the difference between like being blue and clinical depression. Anyway, just curious if you know anybody in your life that's like, I don't feel, I'm not a person that experiences anxiety. Like, wow, I'll have what they're having. To be clear, you exist in the clear. You're not in the woods, nay, in the weeds. That's where I am most of the time. I mean, I truly can't imagine. But anyway, I think for me, yeah, just the past couple of years, especially we're a bit anxiety producing. And I, in general, feel like I'm a person that's always operating at a low simmer, ready to turn up to a rolling boil at any minute. Out of the Woods just meets me where I'm at energetically. And I love it for that. I think it single-handedly got me through like fertility treatments. I, I would listen on the way to get like the daily ultrasounds and stuff last year. And like, I don't know. I you just want to be in the clear yet good. And if I felt like it was one of the few songs that like matched how I felt when I was nervous, but it also is inspiring in times of need and the way it it builds. And I, I just, I don't know, I freaking love Out of the Woods. And I feel like it's important that we revisit the 1989 World Tour version of Out of the Woods because I don't remember if we talked about this, but it's just like, as cri- I, I find it criminal that we, that this was not on the Eras Tour set list. And I'm jealous of those of you that got it as one of your secret songs because it's beautiful acoustic also the editing of the 1989 world tour is so funny and her eyes are like purple i don't uh, uh, is that what indigo is i've always wondered what the eye is in roji biv and her eyes like are an insane color of like bluish purple in this whole tour video i've always found it fascinating but in general i just thought this was the moment from the 1989 world tour and if eras was like a compilation of moments. I'm just shocked that this moment was left off. But I know we we can't win them all. And also, part of me wonders if you have to be kind of selective with and balance out what different songs of you require vocally if you're going to be singing for like three hours. You know, it's like, okay, if you're going to prioritize a note you have to hit, like I respect going for Don't Blame Me because I do think that was an important moment to include and I'm grateful for it. that TikTok noise always ruins videos. And it's always weird when you save a video and it's like at the end of something otherwise serious. You know, if you were a loved one who've been affected by mesothelioma, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Just doesn't always fit the mood. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I guess let's get into it. I guess we are already into it. But as always, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not the Swifty that knows the most. I may get things wrong. I know people get mad about 
the paternity tests of it all about whose songs are about what. As always, I maintain you should interpret them however you wish. <laughs> I just think that's what art is for. And I love talking about random Taylor stuff, like how a whole album was spurred from random access memories winning the Grammy. I'll probably say that 12 times. I just think that anecdote is so funny of hearing an R sound and that being like so, such a pivotal part of the lead up and, and letdown of her thinking she won for red. But anyway, I feel like I need to even like time travel and get myself back in the right headspace because for the purposes of today, you know, I love to reimagine myself experiencing what I call a millennial moon landing. Like when Elsie didn't go to Paris, when, you know, Elle Wood schooled us all with the ammonium thiglocolate of it all. Just moments that are like pivotal and educational and that you'll never forget where you were when. And for me, listening to Blank Space for the first time is one of those moments. I think that, you know, 2014 was a simpler time. We were still in the second Obama administration. We were, I mean, I was listening to Idina Menzel's Let It Go, like because I liked it. And, and kids hadn't even had time to ruin it yet by watching Frozen too much. And I mean, speaking of Frozen, that winter we were we started the year in Sochi at the Winter Olympics with the uh, unfortunate company of Bob Costas and his pink eye. And another chilly trend that year was, of course, the Ice Bucket Challenge that really like dominated culture for like one week, um, which I find trends like that very funny that are so memorable, but they've the shortest shelf life. I mean, shorter than that of a fidget spinner. But the big pop culture stories that year, I mean, do you remember when Beyonce, Jay-Z, and Solange fought in that elevator after the Met Gala? Thankfully, Beyonce, you know, delivered by serving us the lyric about shit going down when there's a billion dollars in an elevator. Not that we have any clarity on it, but I mean, damn, that was exciting. And in 2014, like, when you think about, I mean, Ellen was still like, <laughs> she had the Oscar selfie uh, in, what, February of that year? You probably had like an iPhone 5, an iPhone 6 if you were an early adopter. I feel like I was still recently fairly fresh off my BlackBerry. But we were listening on those iPhones to like a lot of Iggy Azalea. I feel like we forget about that. I mean, I looked on the, the other day at my downloaded song lists or my list of songs available for download. And I saw Why You Gotta Be So Rude. And I was like, God, speaking of short shelf life, what's interesting about One Hit Wonders is that not to be rude to the band Magic. I don't know if there are any Magic heads out there. What are Magic fans called? Magic of the Gatherings. But like I, that in my head was kind of a 2014 one-hit wonder. There are some one-hit wonders that like, if I rehear them, I'm like, oh, I forgot about this song. And it's nice to revisit it. But like, there are some songs that 10 years can have gone by. And I'm like, nope, I do not need to listen to that, to that even one more time. I mean, I was like, I was accosted. It, it was simply not okay by a loudspeaker in like a grocery store semi-recently by Gym Class Heroes. What's this? Is what's the Cupid song? Take a look at my girlfriend. She's the only one I got. Da 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 da. And I was like, I have to leave. I, it was, it wasn't right. I, I hate that song so much. That was also the year of that song, Pompeii. Wait, Bastille by Pompeii. There's a situation with the Bastille song Pompeii. That reminds me of being a kid when I used to mix up Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and Minneapolis and Minnesota. They both sounded like both the city and the state, and I often got them transposed. Anytime I think of the song Pompeii by Bastille, I do have to pause and say, is it Bastille by Pompeii or Pompeii by Bastille? And I can confirm right now. It is the latter, in case anybody else was confused, that Samir Hosier took us to church. 
I was turning on my iPhone, going to my music app, and playing Talk Dirty by Jason Derulo featuring 2 Chains, which just which I find shocking now. There was a lot going on on the radio at the time. But even before Nikki, Jesse, and Ari's Bang Bang, we started off our fall season, our back-to-school season with a bang, given the August 18th announcement of Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. On that day, in a very 2014 move, she announced three surprises via an online stream on Yahoo, of all places, and ABC News. The first being her song Shake It Off. The second being announcing her shift into pop music with her upcoming album 1989. And the third being the premiere of Shake It Off's music video. And the world was shaken up by Shake It Off, given its earwormy beat, its catchy chorus, the, you know, weird part where she says this sick beat. It it spent four weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. It spent 50 weeks on the charts, period. As of 2019, it had sold a total of 5.4 million copies in the United States, and it was one of her biggest singles ever. While Shake It Off isn't the most lyrically astute, it was incredibly commercially catchy, and upon revisiting it, I actually think it says more than I even gave it credit for. It starts with her being like, you know, people say I stay out too late, I got nothing in my brain, I go on too many dates, I can't make them stay so on and so forth, and she's shaking it off. And in the second verse, she's like, I never miss a beat, and I'm lightning on my feet, and that's what they don't see. And like, yeah, we think everyone knows that about her now. She's dancing on her own, making the moves up as I go, and that's what they don't know. And I think this song, really, when you look at it, you know, from a 10,000-foot view, because we're in 2014, so I will be using corporate jargon as I did at the time, um, this song is a really an anthem to dance like nobody's watching. She was not only on the cusp of a lot of unfavorable journalism per her dating habits, the slideshows of men, you know, kind of mocking her for writing songs about who she dates as if that's not what everybody does who writes confessional lyrics from a place of personal experience. But we were kind of in peak misogynistic media toward Taylor. And one of the things people found annoying about her was the way she danced at award shows. Now, of course, we're in what I like to call the Swifty 2.0 fandom where we call her mother, and she's a caricature of herself, and people love to watch her dance at award shows, you know, get drunk and not know how to put her cup in a cup holder at the VMAs. People love to watch her doing coordinated handshakes from the box at a Chiefs Chiefs game. Times have changed. That's why we need to time travel back to a a, a simpler time. But a more problematic time for T-Swift, because she was judged quite harshly at this time. And this song really made sense for her to be like, I'm going to be annoying. I'm going to like things. I'm going to get excited. I'm going to dance anyway. You can say what you want about me dating guys, staying out too late or having nothing in my brain, but there's a lot you don't see and I'm going to shake it off. I get what she was going for. And she went for a really catchy single. And this song was everywhere and still is at most weddings across America. For me in 2014, I was in my 26th going on 27th year of life. At the time, Be There in Five was a business that sold Remind doormats, doormats designed to see you on your way out. I was watching a lot of Shark Tank and thought that we needed to innovate on the welcome mat and thought, hey, let's turn it upside down and say things like turn off your straightener, turn off your curling iron so people like me that are forgetful don't burn their home down. I was doing that in addition to my full-time corporate job. And, you know, I assume I had grown fatigued of listening to the songs I had just mentioned or I was probably in a big YouTube moment at the time, mostly watching that acapella video of the Lion King cast singing the circle of life on like an airplane or a subway or something. And I don't remember a lot of my first touch points, my first moments listening to things 
but I remember the first time I listened to 1989. I've told you this before, but I, I had a work trip very early in the morning of October 27th, 2014. I was in a cab or an Uber. I can't remember what we were doing at the time. But I remember early in the morning, drowsily putting on Taylor Swift's new album, 1989, and Welcome to New York. I remember thinking, holy 80s. I, I don't know if I was ready for that drastic of a shift from red, but I was on board. Because the thing is, I too, you know, was a white girl who moved to New York City in my 20s and thought the city was made for me. Like, wow, this is a concrete jungle where dreams are made of. Right here in the apex of culture and diversity in Murray Hill. I understood the bright lights, long nights, big city essence of that song that she was trying to get across. And having been exposed to Shake It Off prior to that, I wanted to be in my haters gonna hate era. I, I wanted to be a, a more confident version of myself playing hard to get in a matching set like Taylor. Unfortunately for me, a hater's going to hate, but a Kate is also going to Kate, and I care way too much to shake off anything anyone has ever said or done. So did I really reach that point? No. But something about this era of music made me want to kind of have that like confident city gal sensibility that Taylor was exhibiting with all of her model friends. I remember just being very on board from the get-go, even though Welcome to New York isn't like one of my favorite songs ever. But as I've told you before, I distinctly remember amidst the, my drowsy early morning listen of, my, of 1989, getting to the chorus of track two and finding myself smiling from ear to ear. And I, I refer to this as the roller coaster effect, where it is not an option for your face to be in, a, to be in anything other than a state of, of glee because your body is experiencing something physiologically so stimulating that your brain doesn't have time to patch through what your controlled response should be. You're just thrilled. And as far as I was concerned, I thought I was listening to the best pop song I had ever heard in my entire fucking life when I first heard Blank Space. By the time I got to grab your passport in my hand, I can make the bad guys good for a weekend. I was like, oh, my God, we're doing it. I think the part where she gets to because we're young and we're reckless, we'll take this way too far. The way it's sung, I don't know. It, like it, To me, it's what goosebumps are made of. I mean, I still love it. Th that song was everything I ever needed in a pop song. And paired with then later on getting to the song Style, I, which I actually think I heard a snippet of prior to listening on a Target commercial, if I remember correctly. And I was like, what is that? Tip to tail, I loved this album so much. And I was an obsessive listener from the get-go. It's fitting to be talking about 1989, given the beachy seagull vibes, because I'm here to tell you about what gives me dolphin skin. And that is, of course, Osea's Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo. I've been talking about them for years, but I just can't emphasize enough. If you want moisturized, smooth, gorgeous, impossibly non-greasy yet hydrated skin, Osea's products have, have meaningfully changed my life. Specifically, their Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo features two of Osea's best-selling products infused with nourishing seaweed and designed to elevate your body care routine. There's the Andaria Cleansing Body Polish that's a one-step exfoliating, cleansing, and moisturizing shower essential with this like gel-to-milk texture that exfoliates your skin beautifully and leaves it in excellent shape even if you just stopped there, but you don't have to because it also comes with the Andaria Algae Body Oil that seals in hydration after the shower. It moisturizes and makes you glow all day. As I've told you before, it's it's 
very rich and moisturizing, but does it's not greasy. It doesn't get on my sheets or my robe or my clothes. I put it on when I'm a little bit damp and it's like the one solution that has saved my dry skin for several, especially winter seasons now. And I think this is a great way to get to try two of Osea's best-selling products if you've been on the fence. But if you want to treat yourself, you can save 16% on the Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo. Plus with our promo code, you'll get an additional 10% off and you get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. And if you need a more convincing Osea is a trusted skincare brand. They've been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. Everything they make is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Prep your skin for fall with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. And right now, we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code BTIF at OseaMalibu.com. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use code BTIF for 10% off. As we've discussed before, I was historically, especially up until that point, more tuned into the album songs more so than the singles, especially coming off of Red, where I like compulsively listened to Holy Ground and All Too Well and like Starlight, sometimes State of Grace, et cetera. But like the radio obviously was always playing We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. I Knew You Were Trouble in 22. And throughout the course of this podcast, you've heard me kind of rail on those songs. And admittedly, the Eras Tour made me come full circle in appreciating Red singles. And I actually think 1989s kind of fell flat at the Eras Tour. But we'll get to that later. Right now, we're in 2014. But 1989 was special for me because I am a pop girly through and through. And the singles off of 1989 were so good. Even though Shake It Off, you know, got a little bit tired. When, when you think about Blank Space, when you think of style, Wildest Dreams, Out of the Woods, I, sometimes we'll do an exercise where I kind of meditate my way out of the earworm zone. We've heard a song so much, I'm no longer really listening. And I try to revisit the song like for what it is, because these songs were a cultural reset. Blank Space and Style are still two of the best pop songs of all time, in my opinion. And honestly, New Romantics. And what's so crazy about this album is that The Leftovers, the, the bonus tracks were better than some of the you know tracks on the final album. But I understand that maybe didn't meet her criteria for sonic cohesion or balance that she was going for at the time. But to have New Romantics... You Were in Love and uh, Wonderland as the bonus tracks just goes to show the caliber, the quality of the actual tracks themselves because the, the, the surplus is so outstanding. And I genuinely listen to this day to the song Out of the Woods at least two to three times a week. And I, it might be my favorite Taylor Swift song of all time, which I know sounds crazy because I don't know if there are that many Out of the Woods super fans. Something about it is just something that my brain needs. And I can't believe that it's been almost 10 years and I'm still listening to Out of the Woods on a weekly basis, which I can't say for most like random songs off of her previous albums. I think I've gone on the record and said I'm, I self-identify as a 1989 with a red rising and a reputation moon. And I stand by that. And I, I also really love Midnight's, but it hasn't been around long enough to like be submerged into my identity in a way that I could describe it via an astrological parallel. But in my revisit today, actually, I, I want to see if lyrically anything blows my mind because high level, when I think of 1989, I, I actually don't really associate it with its lyrics outside of blank space because when it comes to Taylor Swift music, I'm usually arguing for the quality of the lyrics. Um, but with 1989, I think I saw, I remember seeing in an interview or something at one point, she talks about her intention of having the songs sound how they felt. And I think that this 
might have been the first album where she started writing to track. Like Antonoff sent her the melody for Out of the Woods and she wrote the lyrics for it based on the music or kind of how we saw like the folklore and evermore process happen with Desner. Um, And I think it kind of tracks that that was started with this album because when I think of this era, I just think of it as being fun. Like it sounded fun. It was fun. The media surrounding it was fun. But also in some of the other songs case, they really did sound how they felt. Like Out of the Woods sounded anxiety producing like it was intended to, as she told us it was intended to at one of the greatest acoustic sets of all time at the Grammy Museum. For Wildest Dreams, it sounds wistful and longing like it was intended to. For Clean, it sounds peaceful and healing like it was describing. And I, yeah, I just think overall this era was super fun. I I live for the apex of her media exposure and kind of that flaunting of female friendships, the Tamerica of it all. There was that, there was kind of an overall aesthetic shift where she really matured her look. We, We had a side bang. We had a bevy of fierce matching sets, complete with what I like to call spin-around skirts that my sister and I used to wear in the early 90s, pretending to be figure skaters. All roads lead back to the Winter Olympics. Um, but yeah, like I, even though I love the album Red, like the fashion wasn't quite there for me. But 1989's was. It wasn't fashion I could wear or really repurpose, but like it just was distinct and fun in its own way. Whereas Red was kind of that, as we talk, we've talked about, the... Um, you know, Hyannisport hipster. It was the era that started out with like 1950s housewife dressing. And she kind of like morphed into being cut from the same mod cloth as a vintage Kennedy, if you will. And then toward the end, she started dabbling, you know, in those Oxford shoes and the fedoras. And yeah, sartorially, it just didn't excite me the way the 1989 era did. 1989 is when we started getting um, more custom pieces from like a costume designer instead of pre-existing ready-to-wear clothes. We started getting bedazzled cat suits and like crop top and shorts and crop top and skirt sets. It was an entertaining departure that I think was deliberately done to kind of signify her exiting from what was left of the country version of her into the global pop superstar she is today. And I'd be remiss not to acknowledge like in a post-Miss Americana documentary era, It is a bit hard to look back on 1989 because she talked about how disordered her eating habits were and how, like, faint she would feel after performing. And you guys have seen this scene. Like, I can't unsee it now. And it breaks my heart. And watching the 1989 World Tour, I see it differently now. And I'm like, oh, my God, it it, it hurts. I'm worried for her. But I also don't like to fully reduce that era just to that because then it's kind of doing the thing that she was struggling with is feeling reduced to her body. And I want to write off this entire era and reduce it to the way her body looked or to what her habits were. Um, and I mean, what do they say? Like nostalgia is celebrating what something was. Hindsight is what you do differently. I think there's a lot of hindsight here, but I, I think the nostalgia I feel for this era is incredibly strong. And what's also kind of interesting is like, it's nostalgia for a, a time that even though I joke about like what we were doing in 2014, it's almost hard to place 1989 because per the reviews of it, the glowing reviews, I think specifically the one, uh, the Rolling Stone review of 1989 said that she was making pop hits with almost no contemporary references. And I think that that's such an interesting thing that they pointed out at the time because it didn't sound like anything else out there. And since it's almost hard to date as being so 2014, it doesn't feel trite in the way listening to Bang Bang might. No offense to Nikki, Jesse, and Ari. If they test me, they sorry. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the 
re-records coming out this Friday. And in many ways, I think the Taylor's version re-records can be a gift because there are stronger vocals. Though I'd argue by the time we were at 1989, she had really strengthened her vocals um, quite a bit. So the album already sounds great to me. But I'm interested to see where, if and where she chooses to stray from the originals. The only ones I really haven't been able to co-sign are probably Holy Ground, which kind of lost the the chaos and the buoyancy uh, it had in its first one, and Last Kiss, which selfishly I just felt like it kind of lost its pure sorrow. I think all I really need is for Out of the Woods to maintain its integrity. Also seen in the depths of like my For You page, theories about a double album, and maybe we'll investigate that later because I'm not totally sure where the assumption in the Easter eggs come from. And in my experience, Easter egging, we like I've always thought a double album, like I've always looked too far into details and thought a double album was coming. It never has. But I, I think what's suspicious is that we don't have any feature, like no one's featured, right? Um, and there's usually somebody featured on the vault tracks. I actually don't need the features. And oftentimes, like the person's not even featured heavily enough for it to matter. So yeah, as of now, I'm just anticipating the five vault songs. Slut, Say Don't Go, Now That We Don't Talk, Suburban Legends, Is It Over Now? But was it, isn't there some like universal music group, like copyright of version of style that also is attributed to Harry Styles? And people think that there might be a double album of features. That would be very interesting. I'm, I am game for that. I mean, you know, again, we'd have to buy another vinyl. The best people in life are free, but Taylor Swift merch is not. Um, but I feel like we're used to that at that at, the, at this point. But yeah, I would be interested if there. It's like I almost assume there will have to be some surprises with people being featured or some versions of something that we don't know is coming. A full double album would be crazy. I don't know. I, I guess we'll see. I'm not as deep in the theories as I once was because I felt like I just got disappointed too often because the things I was so convinced would happen, like, never did. But, okay, let's go back to, like, even the liner notes. What I love about 1989, I think it was one of the last times she did, like, a whole hidden message thing. And the hidden message that has, like, kind of a phrase track by track, it kind of tells, like, a whole story. Even though I don't think, like, the intent was to tell this story, I think in retrospect she was able to kind of tell a complete story. Track one, Welcome to New York. The secret, the hidden message is, we begin our story in New York. Track two, Blank Space. Message is, there was once a girl known by everyone and no one. Track three, Style. Her heart belonged to someone who couldn't stay. Track four, Out of the Woods. They loved each other recklessly. To the point of vehicular manslaughter, JK. Five, all you had to do was stay. They paid the price. Six, shake it off. She danced to forget him. Seven, I wish he would. He drove past her street each night. Eight, bad blood, she made friends and enemies. Nine, wildest dreams, he only saw her in his dreams. Ten, how you get the girl, The one. then one day he came back. Eleven, this love, timing is a funny thing. Twelve, I know places, and everyone was watching. Thirteen, clean, she lost him, but she found herself. And somehow, that was everything. This also was at the end of the Out of the Woods music video, where she could be seen wearing a blue dress that is suspiciously similar to the one she was wearing on the back of that boat in Virgin Gorda when she looked very literally blue and also emotionally blue when it appeared Harry Styles had left her on that boat. And I'm nothing if not a pop culture tourist. And did I insist that my then boyfriend, now husband, take me to the BVI and we stopped by Virgin Gorda the following year? Yes, yes, I did. But 1989 famously is, if you're familiar with Taylor Swift interview lore, is the album that she went home after losing the Grammy to random access memories when she thought 
when she really wanted it for Red, uh, she determined that Red was not sonically cohesive and that she wanted a more cohesive album. And that that loss really inspired her foray into pop music. And apparently that night is when it was cemented that she would call this album 1989. What's interesting about 1989 that I wanted to kind of walk through today in terms of how it was built, thanks to some glorious internet strangers who refined this timeline better than I ever could. There's a way you can pick up on clues, on dated Polaroids, on interview anecdotes that will suggest when she wrote what, some confirmed, some not. What's interesting about 1989 is that seven or eight of the songs, as far as I can tell, were written and ready to go for TS5 before it was called 1989, and before I think even she was doing a full confirmed shift to pop, which tracks to me because, I, again, I think the majority of Red wasn't really country at all, so she was maybe going to do something like a blend, but decided to brand it more directly pop uh, toward the end. This also Grammy night that was early 20. 14. I mean, the album came out in late 2014, so a lot of it was already done before it was even named. That's what I mean by the pitted messages kind of tell a cohesive story, but I actually think the songs and inspiration is a little bit more disparate than meets the eye. Um, and I mean, what's interesting in general about any creative work that has to be made before it is released, I feel this way about my own book, One in a Millennial, it comes out in January. Um, by the time the book comes out, a lot of the essays will have been written well over two years prior to the release, which is kind of interesting because even over the past year or so, there have been a lot of conversations in pop culture that have happened that, not to say I was writing them first, but like I was writing about them in a way that felt new at the time. And now I'm like, well, we're already talking about this. Whereas when I wrote it, it felt like kind of fresh. And I think that's what's interesting about working on stuff is like you picture the person having made it in the era in, what, in which it's released. And when you think of 1989 Taylor, you think of her in its era that it was released. But in reality, she was writing these songs as Red Taylor in 2013, maybe parts of 2012, 2014. We think of... Um, 1989 Taylor as like the welcome to New York in New York with all of her girlfriends squad goals version of Taylor because that's how it was branded and, and packaged and yes that is accurate but I have a theory that up until January 2014 the working title and concept for the album was New Romantics because if you, like me, lie awake at night racking your brain for why the hell would New Romantics be a bonus track on the deluxe version of the album? Like, why wouldn't it be on the main album? Why was it released as like a seventh single? How did it not perform that well? And why did it seem like such an overall album afterthought, yet it had the cool summer slot in the 1989 World Tour, meaning it's song two, which basically means it's song one, because one is more of the intro setting the tone. Two is the first full song that really sets the energy. And I think New Romantics is not meant to be an afterthought nor a capstone on the deluxe version, but is a thesis statement. I'll get into this later. First, we have to back up. You've probably noticed this past year, we reviewed a lot more books on the podcast. I've become a much more avid reader since writing one myself. And this is why I love book of the month. I often experience a paralysis of having too many choices. And I like having a curated selection of what I'm told is good, but still feeling the independence of like being able to choose from that group based on my personal interests. You have control in getting to pick which title you yourself want 
to read and oftentimes can discover new and emerging authors as a result. But the curated set of books that you choose from per book of the month's expertise kind of cuts out the clutter and saves me time and makes it easier to decide because I never know where to begin when I'm trying to figure out the next book to read. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. And they're all good. So you can't go wrong. So for example, when you go in the app, A, the app's great because members can rate and review and participate in reading challenges. But also it's very simple from the app to pick one of the new books as your book of the month. And you can also add backlist books to your box at a discount, which for October, I believe I told you I picked uh, Wellness by Nathan Hill. As I saw the tagline being health fads and dysfunctional families in love potions, oh my. But they also have great selections like When I'm Dead by Hannah Morrissey, The Unmaking of June Farrow by Adrian Young, and so much more. And since we're here on a podcast, I know avid listeners of podcasts often like to listen to audiobooks too. And Book of the Month also recently launched their curated audiobooks. In addition to hardcovers, uh, members can choose and download and listen right in the app. It's just fun to have a new book to read every month, a physical one to hold or an audiobook. And I love Book of the Month for how they support new and emerging authors. And if you want to give it a try, get your first book for only $5 with code BeThereIn5 at bookofthemonth.com. Get your first book for $5 with code BeThereIn5 at bookofthemonth.com. I basically built out a 1989 note on my computer with various things I found on Tumblr and Reddit, the real stars. Um, like, the, for example, this is something I found on Tumblr from somebody whose handle is Taylor on your dash. I want to give credit where it's due, but then it becomes confusing because a lot of these things are copied and pasted, it seems. I don't know who got what from where. And I don't even know how verifiable this is, mind you. But alas, that's why hopefully you're here for entertainment and not news, um, because this is all just for fun. Okay, so. It's fun to look back at the timestamps of when people think that each of the songs was written. I think it tells a really interesting story about the building of 1989 that we maybe even dove into before. I mean, also, like, the, I feel like what I'm trying to do is recreate a podcast version of my one of my favorite live performance YouTube things that Taylor's ever done that I watch all the time, which is the Grammy Museum. Uh, performances that were like acoustic. She played Wilder's Dreams on electric guitar. She played Out of the Woods just on piano. She did, did blank space on the acoustic guitar. Like hearing these songs that were so hyper produced pared down made me realize like, God, these songs just are actually that good. They can exist in any format. And when you think of like the insane production of Out of the Woods, you would think it'd be boring on a piano, but like it strangely comes to life. Anyway, I love that Grammy Museum performance. I love her Steve Jobs turtleneck. It felt very like Taylor Swift's keynote, but music edition. And I swear to God, she did something. But prior to that Grammy Museum performance to practice her vocals, like she's never she just sounded so almost disproportionately good to um, how she had in previous live performances. And again, 1989, I think her vocals were pretty solid by this time. But that Grammy performance was next level. Anyway, what I loved about that um, session she did. You can find it on YouTube. She plays voice notes for a lot of the songs and explains the process. But I kind of wanted to take it a step further and break that up by like when the songs were allegedly maybe written. And then uh, like notice patterns in like who was uh, producing and co-writing what, because I think it says a lot about where she was going directionally with the album and how we ultimately ended up uh, where we did. So so the first song that we know of that was written that ultimately ended up on 1989 was This Love. And this was written October 17th, 2012. Mind you, this was before Red even came out. 
And we know this because it was in the Lover Journal that came out as part of the leaflet with the album Lover. And this love started out as a short poem. And what's interesting about this love, now that I'm looking at it, it encapsulates a lot of themes that will go into lyrics of songs that she writes later. So it starts out with Clear Blue Water, High Tide Came and Brought You In. 1989 has an interesting half beach, half city theme that I can't fully reconcile because, we, you know, she later chose the Polaroid with the seagull shirt um, uh, as the cover photo. And that shirt is beachy, but also the Taylor's version, the photos she's put out for like the four vinyls and stuff are all like super beachy. Um, and so 1989 is kind of this interesting combo of like city chic beachy nostalgic polaroid <laughs> um but i think it's interesting the first song she wrote for it is clear blue water high tide came and brought you in um but in the first part of the verse is like in silent screams and wildest dreams i never dreamed of this so we have the screams from clean uh we have the wildest dreams we have through losing gri grip and sinking ships you showed up just in time loose lips sink ships all the damn time his hands had to let it go free and this love came back to me it's kind of we never go out of style like cyclical vibes anyway so that was written october of 2012 and fall of 2012 that's when she met jack antonoff through being in his band fund at the fun at the time um at some like award show in europe and the story goes that they bond over 80s music so january of 2013 is when she was seen on the boat in the blue dress um aboard the flying ray in virgin gorda bbi and that same dress maybe allegedly it reappears in out of the woods um and then january 10th 2013 she tweets back in the studio uh-oh dot 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 um <laughs> don't you miss taylor being on social media like as herself that was fun um and later on on tumblr someone posted it and said taylor swift like what is this and she commented back, all you had to do was stay. So then we have those two songs as of early 2013 when she was like in full red mode. And then she posts a picture of herself playing guitar on January 15th. And there's a caption somewhere in L.A. Later, she reveals on Tumblr that day she wrote How You Get the Girl. And then I believe we know this from a voice memo. May of 2013 is, I think, the first song that she wrote to track from Jack, which is I Wish You Would. I feel like it'd be fun if I played some of the voice memos because that really tells the story of how it was built. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for that. So many of my Taylor Swift episodes, if they vanished, specifically on like Spotify, it's not for suspicious reasons. It's because I played the music and I wasn't allowed to. Um, even though I feel like I was, I've always tried to be responsible with the length of clips regardless. Um Let's play this from I Wish You Would. It kind of made me like the song better, honestly. This is a song that I did with Jack Antonoff. And Jack is one of my friends. And so we were hanging out and he pulled out his phone and goes, oh, I'm, I made this amazing track the other day. It's so cool. I love these guitar sounds. And um, he played it for me. And immediately I could hear this finished song in my head. And I just said, please, please let me have that. Let me play with it, like send it to me. And um, so he sent it to me, I was on tour, and this was uh, me playing the track on my laptop, recording 
me singing the vocal into my phone and um it ended up being a song called i wish you would um because jack wrote back and he was like i love that um so this is another way of writing is writing to track okay so this is an idea called i wish you would it's kind of about this guy who's like he's driving down the street in the middle of the night and he passes his ex-girlfriend's house and it's like he thinks she hates him but she's still in love with him very dramatic this track is sick i hope you like this It's 2 a.m. in your car Windows down, past my street, memories start You say it's in the past, you drive straight ahead You're thinking that I hate you now Cause you still don't know what I never said I wish you would come back Wish I never hung up the phone like I did I wish you knew that I So I think I mentioned earlier this era, she started playing to track. And um, that's an example of a song that like immediately she created something very close to the final version. Similar, similarly with Out of the Woods. I also love the voice notes where she's like mumbling through something and only knows the chorus. We'll get to some of those later. Um, But yeah, I thought that I think that her earliest work with Antonoff is pretty interesting. Um, this song and Out of the Woods. I think she wanted to start experimenting with him for this album, but in the, you know, as she's quoted saying after the Grammys loss in early 2014, she realized she needed to be narrowing down collaborators for Sonic Cohesion. But I think originally she was going to experiment with a lot more different people because prior to predominantly using Max Martin and Shellback, we had saw so Nathan Chapman did this love, and I think that was the last Nathan Chapman one. And he had done so many songs of her before, which is kind of sad. Um, we had Jack, we had Ryan Tedder. Um, and I think that with the writing of like Shake It Off and Blank Space and Style and the like big Max and Shellback hits, um, the album like just ended up skewing more in that direction. And I that's why I wonder if a lot of the cast offs our early Antonoff experimentation that we missed out on her effort to focus the album sonically toward the Swedish pop dudes. To use music industry speak, like, I don't, what am I talking about? Anyway, d- but I, I wish you would is like one of the more 80s sounding songs, I think, because of that intro. The best way I can describe it is Math Blasters. Did you guys play that computer game on like MS-DOS? Very electronic. Um, but that didn't that made me like that song a little bit better. Admittedly, that was my bathroom break at the 1989 World Tour, but did not hate that. So, okay, we have this love and we have I wish you would. So then um she says at like the CMA music festival and like an interview that summer in July of 2013 that like the floodgates have just opened. She's working on a lot of new music. She's really excited about collaborating with a lot of people she's inspired by. Um, so we knew she was working on the album then. Um, Out of the Woods happens next in September. September 15th, 2013 is when Jack sent her the instrumental track for Out of the Woods. Allegedly, his he had a show that was canceled and he left his stuff on the bus and he only had old samples that w- were on his laptop. And that's when he heard the, oh, oh, thing or something. Um, and that's what he, like, sent to Taylor. And that developed into the one of the greatest songs in the history of our time. So um, here's the melody that I've come up with in the lyric. It's called um, Out of the Woods. And it is, um, it goes 
like this. And when I'm when I sing, remember, remember, that's like a vocal echo. But I'm gonna sing it like I'm not. You get it. I know I get. Um, and what I was trying to figure out next, let me look at multiple sources so I see if this there's consistency about this. I totally forgot about this, and this just makes so much sense. It's interesting how Taylor Swift, some people she's dated are in slideshows for eternity, and some people are like kind of forgotten about. And one of these people that is kind of forgotten about that I forgot about is Alexander Skarsgård who was very top of mind for me having just watched Succession. Apparently, he's said to have inspired Wildest Dreams, which I was reminded on this Taylor on your Dash Tumblr. In October of 2013, she was in Cape Town, South Africa, shooting The Giver. One of the cast members is Alexander Skarsgård. Um, as we know, the music video was a problem, it being set in Africa and kind of glorifying this era of colonialism through this, you know, movie set and not having a very diverse cast. There were plenty of issues with the Wildest Dreams uh, music video. But it is pretty interesting that there's a few coincidences here that would make this make sense. Choosing to have the music video be in Africa where she shot the movie with Skarsgård. They're so tall, handsome as hell. Like most, a lot of songs from this era are attributed to like a Harry Styles, but Skarsgård is like, what, 6'4"? And then she went out of her way to explain that Wildest Dreams is part of her new framing of romance at this stage in her life, which I'll go into later when I talk about the new romantics angle. But she had a lot of quotes kind of talking about how she used to approach love with this assumption that it's going to be forever or they're going to be the one. And this album was more like, let's have fun while this lasts. And there's a specific quote that says that Wildest Dreams is like about imagining the end when it's first starting. I mean, literally in the lyrics, she says, I can see the end as it begins, my one condition is. But I think Wildest Dreams is interesting when you think of it in the context of being kind of like a reverse enchanted. I'm enchanted to me. Please don't be in love with someone else. It's like imagining this future together. Uh, whereas, yeah, Wild Dreams flips it on its head and is like, we just met and I'm already imagining the end, but I hope you'll think well of me. Oh, yeah, this is a magazine interview. She said, Wildest Dreams is kind of a good example of the way my outlook on love has changed. Over the years, I think as you get more experience under your belt, as you become disappointed a few times, you start to think of things in more realistic terms. It's not like you meet someone and that's it. If they like you and you like them, well, it's going to be forever, of course, or it's going to go down in flames, as we know, as a side note. I don't really look at love like that anymore. I think the way I see love is kind of a little more fatalistic, which means to me that when I meet someone and we have a connection, the first thought I really have is, when this is over, I hope you think well of me. 
So this song is about having that immediate connection with someone. And these were my very vivid thoughts right as I met him. And then she compares uh, Tim McGraw to Wildest Dreams, which I find really interesting, saying that the only difference is that Tim McGraw, I wrote that song about a relationship that had already ended, hoping he would remember me well. Wildest Dreams is just beginning and already foreshadowing the end of it. And that would make sense for a person she maybe like had a brief fling with on a movie set. IDK. His hands are in my hair, his clothes are in my room, too. Is like, I don't know, when you live on your own, would you call it your room or would you call it your room if it was like your hotel room? You know what I mean? His clothes, hands are in my hair, his clothes are in my room. Would you say his clothes are in my house? Maybe you would say your room. I don't know. And I, I think she released the original lyrics for Wildest Dreams, which helps us date it to October 20th-ish of 2013 from the, I think, the Lover Journals. The original lyrics, he said, let's disappear from here. Drive out of this city till the lights burn out. It's okay if we never get found. Live in here forever. Better keep it to yourself. And you're so tall and handsome as hell. I don't know what you do, but you're, you're doing it well. And when we've had our very last kiss, my last request is... Okay, and then apparently... I've seen different things about the alleged recording of Blank Space... But a couple different sources have attributed to, attributed it to November 19th, 2013. My favorite part about the lore of Blank Space, she shared during the Grammy Museum performance and played this voice note. A, love it because you can tell that it's not fully fleshed out yet, but here, like the vision for it. And I appreciate just as a creative that feels very vulnerable, like I don't like to share my ideas until they're complete. And I'm kind of amazed she's like able to confidently I mean, at that point, meet with these like powerhouses of pop music and just being, you know, and they're like, yes, they get it. Just I'm obsessed and fascinated with the with her creative process. But this is how they determine like the pen click noise. And you can hear one of them in the background being like, that's so annoying. They're going to kill you. And it's just like a cute voice memo. But yeah, allegedly, this was in November of 2013. And this is where I assume things kind of started to change in working with Max and Shellback. So this is the very beginning stages of a song on the album called Blank Space. Like, let's to meet you where you've been. I could show you incredible things. Diamonds, seasides, all these tunes. I said, tell me, it's in my Oh my God, listen up, listen up. I do too, listen up, listen up. Regardless, November 21st, 2013, at the AMAs, Taylor tells Billboard she's written around seven or eight songs uh, for the album, which 
tracks with what we've uh, kept track of, in addition to potentially some Antonov songs that didn't make the cut that we'll maybe get later. Um, She said, we've got a lot already. There are probably seven or eight songs I know I want on the record. It's really ahead of schedule for me. I'm just stoked because it's already evolved into a new sound, and that's all I wanted. And I would have taken two years to make that happen, but it just kind of happened naturally. So that's all I could really ask for. Apparently, we do know that New Romantics and Wonderland were both written in 2013. I do not know how we know this. And then we get to 2014, which is when Taylor starts to look for a place in New York. January 2014 is when she writes, I know places and welcome to New York with a new collaborator, Ryan Tedder from One Republic. This is notable because this is where I'll get into my weird new romantics theory in that I do think that she had an even number of collaborators with like Antonov, Tedder, Martin and Shellback that New Romantics at some point was written and was kind of tying together all these themes around when she said at the AMAs, I've got seven or eight songs and I'm going for this like new vibe, new sound. But I think everything changed when she decided to brand it to 1989 in January. And that's when New Romantics got relegated to a bonus track. But first, so she's thinking about moving to New York. She worked with Ryan Tedder. This is how I know Places was created. And I always forget how much I like this song, but I really do like this song. The And we run is so powerful. Um, and I like how she sings and guns, even though I hate guns. I like how she sings the word gun. And I also like how Little Big Town sings it in their version of Better Man that Taylor Swift did not, did not, decided not to like riff on for her version, which is fine. It's just I'm not totally over it yet. Anyways, here's part of the I Know Places voice memo. I, I love the ones where she doesn't fully have the um, words done yet. I sent this voice memo to Ryan Tedder because I'd always wanted to work with him. And finally, we, we scheduled some studio time. So I always want to be prepared. I wanted to send him the idea that I was working on before we went into the studio, just in case he wrote back and said, I can't stand that. I want to work on something else. Think of something else. So um, I just sat down at the piano, put my phone on top of the piano and just kind of explained to him where I wanted to go with the song, how I saw the melody sitting in. And um, we ended up recording the song the next day and it ended up being on the record called uh, I Know Places. So this was the voice memo that I sent to him the night before we ended up finishing the song. Okay, so this is kind of this rough idea thing. Okay, and then Taylor and Ryan, they write I Know Places. Um, and Welcome to New York is like January 23rd or 24th, 2014. Mind you, January 26th, 2014 is the night of the Grammys when Taylor performs all too well and loses album of, uh, album of the year 
to random access memories when she thought they were going to say red, part of Taylor lore. I'll jump back to this in a second. This is that same Grammys night. Diane Warren says on the red carpet that she made a song with Taylor. We never saw it. Never saw the light of day. Guess what's on the 1989 re-records or from the vault? Is that uh, is it two? Th- wait, there. it's four Antonoff tracks and one Diane Warren. So Clean was done on February 9th of 2014. Um... We know this from Polaroids, and she said, Clean is the last song on the album for a lot of reasons, but mostly because it felt like the complication of this emotional process I've been going through for the last couple of years. I feel like my personal life was really, really discussed and criticized and debated and talked about to a point where it made me feel almost kind of tarnished in a way. And the discussion wasn't about music. It broke my heart that I had made an album that I was proud of, and I was touring the world and playing sold-out stadiums, and they still managed to only want to talk about my personal life. At a certain point, I felt a switch, and I... And it was at the end of the rec- of recording this album that I began to feel like my life was mine again and my music was at the forefront again. I was living my life on my own terms and I really no longer cared what people were saying about me. That was when I started to see people talk less about the things that didn't matter. I had a metaphor in my head about being in this house. There's been a drought, but you feel like there's a storm coming. Instead of trying to block out the storm, you punch a hole in the roof and just let the rain come in. And when you wake up in the morning, it's washed, washed away. And then... Imogen said, we met at my studio in London. She had the bare bones of clean and said it was a really fun day. She recorded all her vocals during that one session. She did two takes and the second take was it, which I think is really cool. Um, We always thought we'd re-record it because we thought it can't possibly be that easy. But after we lived with it for a few months, we felt it was great. She knew she loved it. She said her mom loved it. But I wasn't sure it would be included on the album. And she, yeah. So that's how we get clean. And then on February 14th, we have Shake It Off. And we know this from a Polaroid. And in the Lover Journal, it said, This week I've been in the studio with Max and Johan every day. And it has been the most creatively successful and fulfilling time. The first day, Johan made really up-tempo drum beat, beat because we decided we needed something up and light. We worked at it for a few hours before I just started singing Shake It Off, Shake It Off, Shake It Off. And then the best way I know how to describe it is that the chorus just fell out of the sky. It ended up being this song about doing your own thing, even though haters are going to hate and you just have to dance to your own beat. We all went home and I wrote the first and second verses and brought them in the next day. We wrote this chanty cheerleader bridge that I absolutely love. We spent all day doing vocals and the next day recording the background vocals. I think it'll end up being the first single and Max said it's his favorite song he's ever been a part of, which is wild when you look at Max Martin's discography did like almost all of the Backstreet Boys discography, at least the good stuff, the As Long As You Love Me's, the Quit Playing Games With My Heart. Did a lot for NSYNC, did Britney's Baby One More Time, did majority of Britney's Oops, I Did It Again. Max Martin is responsible for the song that healed a goddamn generation of broken hearts with Kelly Clarkson since you've been gone. He also did Robin's Show Me Love, which is very important to me. And less important to me, he was behind a couple of Bo Bice's songs, but you haven't thought of him in a while. Probably not him or Taylor, uh, what's-his-face's Soul Patrol. Taylor Hicks. Gotta love Taylor Hicks. He's behind the most 2010 song that ever 2010 in the 2010s, which is Tayo Cruz's Dynamite. Dynamite? Dynamite is dynamite. Dynamite sends me. Dynamite's so important. Think of all the, the memories you have in your life when Dynamite was playing. I think I have a clip from a voice memo from Shake It Off. Cause the haters gonna wait. Cause the players gonna play, 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 play. 
Haters gonna hate, 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 hate. I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake it off. Shake it off. High five. And it sounds like a chorus. And I'm surprised that this wouldn't be proof because remember, they didn't they get sued by um, the people behind the song of, uh, was it 3LW? Play is gonna play. Uh, and haters, they gonna hate. Ballers, they gonna ball. Shot callers, they gonna call. That ain't got nothing to do with me and you. That's the way it is. I did like 3LW. I think we easily forget the 3LW to Cheetah Girl to Rob Kardashian's girlfriend to the talk co-host spy plan that Adrian Balon experienced, and we're grateful for her. Uh, it is interesting, though. Like, some, I, mean, I love Max Martin's pop song, um, but it is funny. It's like, yeah, do you think it's that big of a stretch that he was behind the song? The player's going to play, 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 and the hater's going to hate, 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 hate. I'm, I'm just going to shake, 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 shake. Um, it's like, I don't think this is a stretch that he's part of this. Look at the first verse of Dynamite. I came to dance, 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 dance. I hit the floor because that's my plans, 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 plans. I'm wearing all my favorite brands, 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 brands. Give me some space for both my hands. Do you see what's coming? Hands, hands, hands. <laughs> that's what we call a pattern. God, I love dynamite. I feel like when I was in college and early adulthood, there were so many songs that almost took this confusingly colloquial approach to songwriting where like the lyrics would just make me laugh. Like, I used to keep a list of things, lyrics that I was just like, what are we singing? Like, what are we talking about? This just reminded me because I always have found the dynamite chorus. I throw my hands up in the air sometimes to be like, it's kind of a weird way to phrase it. And it reminds me of Akon Smack That and the use of the word possibly. Uh, you know, maybe, what, what, how does that song go? Like, go to my place and just kick it like Tybo and possibly bend you over? Like, what's the vibe? What are you thinking? Possibly? Look back and watch me smack that. I just think the use of possibly in that song is really funny. It also, to use another Akon reference, I mean, I think we all can acknowledge what a weird choice of phrase it was in the chorus of Sexy Bitch. To be like, see, I'm trying to, Como Sadice, like I'm trying to find the words to describe this girl without being disrespectful. Never mind abort mission, damn, you know, she's a sexy bitch or whatever. And then there were just lyrics like, and buy you a drink. It makes me laugh that, the, uh, the, you know, we take up time on that song with the words, talk to me, I talk back. Like, what? <laughs> and the first time I heard Rihanna's Unfaithful, I think I was with my friend Hyla, and we were like cracking up because obviously now it's a good song. And once you've heard a song so much, you, don't, you stop thinking about the words critically. But the first time I heard it, I remember hearing her sing, I don't want to be a murderer. And we're like, what? It just, it felt very out of context with the rest of the song. It was just almost like, it was a weird choice of words. And then her song Umbrella in general, objectively is very funny to have a chorus. You can stand under my umbrella, but that's like one of the best songs ever. But the first time I heard it, I remember being like, oh gosh, wow, we're singing about umbrellas. And I felt the same way about Cyclone. It just seemed like we were picking words and making them into choruses. Um, and then the other word that used to bother me of late 2000s music is uh, Fergie's. Um, oh, you know. Uh, what's that song called? I forget. Um, but I'm gonna miss you like a child misses that blanket. I was like, what? What is that? What is that lyric? I'm gonna miss you like a child misses their blanket. It takes you out of the moment because it's almost just so not artful. It's so literal. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. 
I have loose connections in my head that when I say them out loud, aren't connections at all. Like how I just got from dynamite to Fergie, a child misses their blanket. I'm not entirely sure, but we'll leave it in there just in case uh, any of you possibly could be won over, not bent over. So we know February 19th, 2014, Taylor, Max, Shellback, they do style. We know this from a Polaroid, and we also know from the Polaroid. I mean, we also, at least I remember her saying on a, like a Ryan Seacrest interview, that style was the last on 1989, which I feel like I saw something recently that suggested style wasn't the last one. But I feel like that has always been the lore, that style was like what really cemented or like rounded out the record she wanted to create. And my God, did it ever. Style is just like so important. Um, and about style, she said, I loved comparing these timeless visuals with a feeling that never goes out of style. It's basically one of those relationships that's always a bit off. The two people are trying to forget each other. So it's like, all right, I heard you went off with her. And well, I've done that too. My previous albums have been sort of like, I was right, you were wrong, you did this, it made me feel like this, a righteous sense of right and wrong in a relationship. What happens when you grow up is you realize the rules in a relationship are very blurred and it gets very complicated very quickly. And there's not a case of who was right or wrong. Very new romantics. Um, and this timeline mentions Ryan Tedder produces another three versions of Welcome to New York later in February, but she stuck with the demo from January. And then finally, in March, she actually moves to New York. And from a lover journal, she comments on how she's watching Law and Order with Meredith. In May, she chooses the cover photo. I guess she had a different one. I don't know what it was, but she ends up choosing the seagull sweatshirt purposely that wasn't showing her eyes. She wrote about that in Lover. And um, about 1989, she says, the 1980s was a very experimental time in pop music. People realized songs didn't have to be the standard drums, guitar, bass, whatever. We can make a songs with synths and a drum pad. We can do group vocals for the entire song. We can do so many different things. And what I think you saw happening with music was also happening in our culture where people were just wearing whatever crazy colors they wanted to, because why not? There just seemed to be this energy about endless opportunities, endless possibilities, endless ways you could live your life. And so with this record, I thought, there are no rules to this. I don't need to use the same musicians I've used or the same band or the same producers or the same formula. I can make whatever record I want. Which is funny because that's almost the antithesis of how she describes the incredibly focused way she approached it following the Grammy loss, which we'll get into. She said, in the past, I've written mostly about heartbreak or pain that was caused by someone else and felt by me. On this album, I'm writing more about more complex relationships where the blame is kind of split 50-50. Even if you find the right situation relationship-wise, it's always going to be a daily struggle to make work. Anyway, again, thank you to Taylor on your dash on Tumblr. Okay, so that was the song order. Now, let me explain why I think New Romantics is more significant than like anybody ever gives it credit for. So we went through the loose order of how the songs were made, but let's pop back to January momentarily, right after I Know Places and Welcome to New York to the night she lost the Grammy for Red to Daft Punk. I was just posting a Best in Show I recorded that was like a mom edition, and I with the moms I interviewed, I kept asking about food because I'm like, man, with like school drop-off and activities, even like packing lunches, how do you assemble meals for your family? But I've come to learn that a lot of people use Hungry Root as their secret weapon because it's the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They have healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place, and this is what makes them distinct. Instead of like a meal kit that sends you pre-parsed ingredients that work for a specific recipe, Hungry Root sends you like full groceries and recipes that go along with it. 
So you can use the groceries for the recipes, but you don't have to. You can also use them in other ways, which I think is a great balance of two business models. And what's cool about Hungry Root, too, is the level of customization, especially with somebody like me that has food allergies or just even if you have preferences. I also love that they ask you with this short quiz questions like what appliances do you have? So I don't have to like food process things on a Tuesday night when I'm starving. And the fun short quiz gets to know you, your goals and how you like to eat, what flavors you like. And they keep your needs top of mind and start building your cart. What did I get this week? Let me look at the app. I got meals for an extra fancy classic beef burger, a peppery turkey tenderloin and cheesy asparagus, a rotisserie chicken salad over Southwest chopped salad. And I actually had them select this one. I didn't build this cart myself, but they never miss. I got bread and butter pickle slices. I got a dark chocolate wafer. I got garlic hummus and chips, pineapple spears, Himalayan pink salt popcorn, which I love. Hungry Root goes beyond your weekly grocery haul with thousands of easy recipes that actually put your groceries to good use before they get forgotten in the back of your fridge. Everything Hungry Root offers follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. So you can spend less time shopping and cooking and more time enjoying healthy food that you'll actually love with Hungry Root. Right now, Hungry Root is offering my listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash in 5 to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash in 5 Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Let's pop back to January momentarily. Right after I Know Places and Welcome to New York to the night she lost the Grammy for Red to Daft Punk. And she is later quoted saying, and she describes this as happening two different ways. One quote I found is that she said, I woke up one morning at 4 a.m. and decided the album is called 1989. I've been making 80 synth pop. I'm just going to do that. I'm calling it a pop record. I'm not listening to anyone at my label. I'm starting tomorrow. I liked the idea of collaborating, but with 1989, I decided to narrow down the list. It wasn't going to be 10 producers. It was going to be a very small team of four or five people I always wanted to work with or loved working with. And Max Martin and I were going to oversee it and we were going to make a sonically cohesive record again. Um, she also says, it was the night of the Grammys this year. I remember going home and playing a lot of the new music I had recorded for some of my backup singers and one of my best friends. We were all sitting in the kitchen. I was playing them all this music and they were just saying, you know, this is very 80s. It's very clear to us that this is so 80s. We were just talking and talking about how it's kind of a rebirth in a new genre, how that's a big, bold step, kind of starting a part of your career over when they left that night i just had this very clear moment of it's got to be called 1989 so this is all um the night of january 25th no january 26 2014 right okay this is really all not not all that important but a, a rhetorical question i ask myself often ever since hearing the deluxe version of 1989 is like why the hell is new romantics a bonus track it's such a good pop song it was ultimately released as the seventh single it's not just me though it's critically acclaimed too um let me find there's a quote from somebody in rolling stone yeah oh yeah rob sheffield it was number two on rob sheffield's list of best songs of 2014 in rolling stone he says, we show off our different scarlet letters. Trust me, mine is better. It's the sharpest couplet Taylor has ever written, except maybe the others in this song. I have no idea why she left a song this urgent and glittery and perfect off her album. It's a bonus track, but geniuses are weird. To me, New Romantics is hits different levels of pop perfection. That, And I'm expecting to see a renaissance for hits different. Uh, kind of like 
we sorry, a renaissance for new romantics, kind of similar, not similar to All Too Well, but All Too Well was like big in the fandom for 10 years before it was re-released. But the re-release made it into something huge that traversed into like mainstream culture because it wasn't a single. Um, new, new Romantics was a single, but it was a seventh single. It was kind of half-assed with the like collab mashup 1989 tour video. Um, and I have theories about why it was even released, but I'll get to that later. Um, so I don't even know if New Romantics like Radio Run even gave it a fair shot. And I just I don't know. I think I, I need people to just realize how good just like Out of the Woods. New Romantics and Out of the Woods, I think, are the darlings of 1989, even though I said Blank Space and Style are two of the best pop songs of all time, which I stand by. I think Out of the Woods and New Romantics are two of the most underrated pop songs of of all time, of our time, really. Um, and I started thinking about New Romantics in this context when I saw the 1989 world tour, maybe upon a rewatch of it at some point, because it had the Cruel Summer spot, is what I would call it now in that it was the second song on the tour. And even the way Taylor has talked about 1989's bonus tracks that we're getting this time, the five that we're getting, she said in an ca Instagram caption, to be perfectly honest, this is my most favorite re-record I've ever done because the five from the vault tracks are so insane. I can't believe they were ever left behind, but not for long. Uh, the credits I can see on the tracks are all Antonoff, except one is with Diane Warren. They aren't Max Martin or Shellback. So I think I think 1989 shifted gears so last minute that a ton of really high quality stuff that she loved got left on the cutting room floor. So yeah, my theory is that this concept, the album concept was new romantics until the January post-Grammy shift to 1989 that coupled with the timing of her and Ryan Tedder writing Welcome to New York like literally the day before the Grammys which has the most overtly 80s sound of the entire thing, outside of I Wish You Would, there was a dramatic shift made because the two goals she set that night after losing the Grammy were sonic cohesion and to a rebirth into a new genre. So in order to accomplish these things, she had to narrow down collaborators. So from there, her and Max and or Shellback made some of the most like the most distinctly 1989 songs after that point pretty late in the game they made style they made shake it off prior to the 1989 branding of the album after the grammys the songs that were written as far as i understand it were this love all you had to do is stay how you get the girl i wish you would out of the woods i know places so think about that as an album that doesn't have Welcome to New York, that doesn't have Shake It Off, that doesn't have style. But I think what we associate with 1989 is very Max Martin and Shellback. So she decided that Grammys night that she was going to hone in on them and focus on them as the collaborators. She kept Out of the Woods with Antonoff. She kept Ryan Tedder's I Know Places. She wrote Welcome to New York with him kind of last minute. But my point is, I think all of those songs, this love, all you have to do is say, how you get the girl, I wish you would out of the woods. I know places that all to me is this like vague new romantics album where she's exploring this kind of uh, new outlook on romance. And it's also a double play on the movement of new romanticism, which was a pop cultural movement in the UK, the late 70s, early 80s, Boy George, Culture Club. And while it was implied, I think, in a lot of those existing songs pre Grammys that I mentioned in this new romantics concept, 
you know, using drum pads, synthesizers, etc. I don't feel like these songs were overtly 80s. And I think the choice to start it with Welcome to New York, especially with that timing being around the Grammys and being like, I need a rebirth. I need it to be called 1989. I think Welcome to New York booted New Romantics, not only because the concept had changed, but also Welcome to New York starts the album sounding so 80s. It almost convinces you the album is super 80s, though I really don't think that most of it is overtly 80s. And I think that putting it as the first track not only was for the very distinct 80s sounds for that sonic cohesion goal, I think it also met the second goal of a rebirth and a total genre switch because what is Welcome to New York telling us? I live in New York now. Where don't I live? Nashville. I think she wanted to make it very clear that this was like her big city girl single era with her girlfriends and this new outlook on romanticism. It's not a very strong song, in my opinion, but it was a, the right choice for a transition song to be like, I am a different person now. This is a 1989 album. I live in New York. I'm a pop singer. Whereas I think New Romantics is like the better song, but wouldn't have painted something that clear. Even though I think New Romantics has a very implied 80s inspiration, it's not quite as din, 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 like electronic. Like, you know, like to me, Welcome to New York is in my head, it's played on a keytar. It's it's so 80s. I actually think New Romantics, in essence, matches the way she described the album in a lot of the interviews in terms of the new way she views romance. She has a lot of pull quotes that are kind of describing this transition she had from essentially hopeless romantic to fatalist romantic to a new version of a romantic. I should look for a direct quote. Hang on. Then she said in an NPR interview in 2014 that it's a good example of the way I go into relationships now. If I meet someone who I feel I have a connection with, the first thought I have is when this ends, I hope it ends well. I hope you remember me well, which is not anything close to the way I used to think about relationships. It's that realization that it's the anomaly if something works out. It's not a given. And she says in a Rolling Stone interview in 2014, I think the way I used to approach relationships was very idealistic. I used to go into them thinking maybe this is the one. We'll get married and have a family. This could be forever. Whereas now I go in thinking how long do we have on the clock before something comes along and puts a wrench in it or your publicist calls and says it isn't a good idea. Something about the song New Romantics that I've always found interesting is the bridge. Please take my hand and please take me dancing and please leave me stranded. It's so romantic. The whole, pr I think New new Romantics could have been like a killer leading song and kind of way to underscore the album because I think a lot of this album is about her new perspective on romance and the new way she romanticizes her life about being more about her friends and having fun and not just about relationships. And, you know, some of the songs are doing the storytelling of a relationship, but they're a little bit more anxious. They're about recovery. They're about wishing the person would stay, but they didn't. They're, it's an instruction manual for getting the girl back. It's The whole album is kind of like romance on these new terms that she's established as a slightly older version of herself. It's a departure from the fairy tale esque version of romance. That's a departure from the burning red, uh, disappointing angle of romance. Now that I'm uh, revisiting it, so... it. New <laughs> I got to stop talking about new romantics. But um, I do think it's an important song that marks the transition tonally, like in how she wants people to view her um, because the way she has talked about romance and her songwriting up until this point 
was very much used against her. They were the br- they were the bricks thrown at her. Like maybe I could build a castle out of all the bricks they threw at me. So she's it's like the way she used to talk about romance in this more hopeless romantic fairy tale esque situation where she didn't view life like a classroom. Heartbreak wasn't the national anthem. It was like a source of shame. Now she's taking those bricks and building a castle in a fairy tale esque format. But instead, this castle is just like a all female pregame paradise for you know, fancy free partying in a casual lifestyle where we collect experiences because life is just a classroom. I think it's not satirical and it's more like self-aware tongue in cheek because and it's more like a millennial hookup culture anthem where it's like we're all we get bored easily. We get tired of everything. Um, And instead of like hiding our scar- scarlet letters, we show off our different scarlet letters. You know what I mean? Like, yes, we're young. We're on the road to ruin and you know, we play dumb, but we know exactly what we're doing. Like, that's the self-awareness, I mean, of like, we, we you know, we're crying real t- tears in the bathroom, but life is just a classroom. We're collecting experiences. I, I electively am participating in this version of new romance. And I'm going to build a castle out of all the bricks they threw at me, making fun of how I viewed romance in the past. And I'm just, I'm having fun now. Every day is like a battle. And every night it's like a dream because at night we hook up with different people. And we have fun, but then you wake up in the day and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is maybe a drag and I do want something more long term. But in the moment, we convince ourselves it's fun <laughs> and we're too busy dancing to get knocked off our feet. Um, and anyways, I think please take my hand and please take me dancing and please leave me stranded. It's so romantic is funny because it's kind of like, yeah, I'm acknowledging that this type of pursuing of fleeting relationships in hookups, whatever she's trying to get across here. She's acknowledging she's not pursuing forever. She's not pursuing like permanent types of relationships. There are times in your life where you do prioritize like the next best thing or there are times in your life where you're like not looking for forever. You're not dating to marry. You're just like looking for the next fun thing, the next hot guy or girl that comes your way. Like oftentimes in these more young and wild and free phases of life, you would romanticize something like a person ghosting you or leaving you stranded. And I think that's kind of like a self-aware thing of of being a new romantic is like, this is the phase I'm in. It's like not forever and it's not deeply romantic, but like I'm romanticizing things like being taken dancing and being left stranded. Like this is what we do. We're just having fun. This is the new me. Um, so anyways, that's like not even important and has no bearing on anything. And I don't know why I just went into that, but If anybody like me ever thinks, why wasn't why was New Romantics not on the main album? I think that it was, and I think it was the thesis and possibly the title track or the leading track for the album up until the Grammy night when she shifted gears and needed a rebirth and a level of sonic cohesion that the other songs alone weren't providing, and it all started to make sense with the insertion of Welcome to. New York right before that Grammy party and having that more distinct 80s sound. And that's when New Romantics got relegated to a bonus track. And I think people think New Romantics is satire and that maybe it was booted because going up right up against blank space, like that might be confusing to have two satirical songs. I think parts of New Romantics are tongue in cheek, but not necessarily satirical. But in, in general, I'm just obsessed with the energy of her writing Welcome to New York. Before she even officially moved to New York. But I I relate to the intoxicating nature of even the apartment hunt. I would imagine it's a lot funner when you're not short on cash and splitting a one bed with three girls like I did. But I, I genuinely understand the appeal.
in conclusion, if we're, you know, vague marketing girlies here, I think that New Romantics is the messaging and 1989 is the branding. Does that make sense? Uh, The last thing I'll say about that song is that it was so they technically seven singles were released off of 1989, which I just think is wild and kind of unusual. I guess I need to look at their other albums to verify that. But I remember reading an anecdote back in the day. Let me find it. So as we've talked about here, we, you know, we know Taylor loves an accolade. She loves uh, to break a record. Um, And she's very competitive. And um, I do think at this time, if she was really that mad at Katy Perry, where she, A, did bad blood, and then B, went out of her way to make it so people could easily infer it was about her, based on what she said about her dancers being taken away. Taylor Swift does, like, every record ever, and she still, like, finds ways to find new flattering denominators to break more records, even to this day. But at the time, I read somewhere that New Romantics was added at the end because five of 1989's six singles had topped the charts. So that would have made her one song away from tying or beating Katy Perry for having the most hit singles in a singular album. And I think New Romantics would have been like the tiebreaker. So at the time, no artist had matched or exceeded Michael Jackson's record of five number one hits from a single album until Katy Perry with Teenage Dream because she had California Girls, Teenage Dream, Firework, E.T., Last Friday Night, um, all from the same album. With the addition of the one that got away, I think that's six songs. One that got away peaked at number three, not number one. So the album Teenage Dream had six top tens in a singular album. And five of 1989's six singles had topped the charts. Allegedly, Taylor Swift needed wanted a sixth song, song to top the charts. But what's disappointing is the two singles that didn't top the charts are the two that I'm arguing are, are criminally underrated, which are Out of the Woods and New Romantics. Anyway, just side note, uh, not important. I don't really think, I don't know if she's like that petty or detail-oriented, but a theory. But again, the hamburger french fry they made up, we're all good now. And obviously, since then, Midnight's has smoked every record that ever existed in the history of time because it had 10 top 10s and reset the record for most top 10 Hot 100 hits from any album. And they all occurred in one week. The first Hot 100 top 10 shutout in history with Antihero, Lavender Haze, Karma, Maroon, Snow on the Beach, Midnight Rain, Bejeweled, Question, and You're you're On Your Own Kid, and Vigilante Shit. (sighs) Crazy. All right, you guys, I got to move on. This is officially old romantics, old news. Uh, (laughs) I don't know why I felt the need to talk about it for that long. But what was the point of this episode even? I guess I wanted to walk through like the making of 1989, at least as far as I understand it, because I just thought it was interesting how this album was made. If anything, because it shows kind of the messiness of the creative process. It's kind of the, I mean, the old adage, uh, the difference between finding yourself and creating yourself. Like, I think some people get really distracted trying to work backward or reverse engineer from like an end goal or an end concept. When most high quality creative projects just evolve into what they're supposed to, it's like a creation process, and then it becomes what it is instead of you telling it what it has to be. Um, I mean, speaking of a messy process, I feel like this episode was all over the place. 
I think I wanted a more sonically cohesive <laughs> overview. Um, but I nowadays with the babe and all, I'm recording like in disparate chunks. I'm not always sure if and when and how I'm repeating myself. So thank you for your patience. I kind of threw this together last minute because I was like, you know what? I want like a bigger 1989 celebration. I feel like I, I kind of will lose interest or grow fatigued of, I don't know, like it's not that I'm fatigued of the Travis Kelsey thing. I just, I, I think I'm not like as into it as other people. It's not that I'm not, I'm happy for her. I just, you know, I didn't have context for him. I'm not like a football fan. Like I want her to be happy and I hope it all goes well. But I'm just like, I think, I, I think almost in response to the hyperbolic TikTok that's like planning their wedding. I'm almost in protest being like chill about it, if that makes sense. <laughs> but I do want her to be happy. I do want her to date somebody that's proud of her. Uh, I'm sure a lot of great music will come from this era. And yeah, she seems to be living her best life. Also, oh, I didn't go into like Wonderland or did I go into You Were in Love? Shoot. That song's confusing, too, because didn't she say she wrote it about Jack and Lena, but then Jack didn't know it was about him and Lena? And now it's like, well, they're married to different people. But that song is still so good. I, I think it's better than this love. And I've always wondered why you were in love was a bonus and this love was a main. But I actually think this love is maybe like a personal choice that is near and dear to her heart since uh, as we reviewed, that was the first song from 1989 to be written based off of that poem in 2012. If we're talking lyrically 1989, I think that you Were in Love has some of the strongest lyrics of all the songs. I mean, I kind of love like the cadence, like, I don't know how it's not full sentences, buttons on a coat, lighthearted joke, no proof, not much, but you saw enough or like morning, his place, burnt toast, Sunday, you keep his shirt, he keeps his word, I have goosebumps. And for once you let go of your fears and your ghosts, one step, not much, but it's said enough. Mm -mm. Sorry, I forgot where he was. This happens all the time. And so it goes, you two are dancing in a snow globe round and round, and he keeps the picture of you in his office downtown. And you understand now why they lost their minds and fought the wars, and why I've spent my whole life trying to put it into words. Mm, those, those are like some of the best lyrics of hers, like ever, of, of all time. Now that I just said dancing in a snow globe round and round, isn't you were in love part of like the Kaler canon? Because they looked like they were in a snow globe, but when they like met at the Red Victoria's Secret fashion show, I haven't been in the Kaler fandom in a minute. Um, back in the day, I was deep. But that was also when they realistically could have still been friends. But ever since they have not been friends and she's been married and has two kids and wrote It's Time to Go and Carly was not in the VIP section of the Airs tour, pretty, pretty sure it's safe to say something happened between them. I'm pretty sure at this point it's Scooter Braun related. Um but I do know that there are a lot of different interpretations of this song, which is I, of these songs, which, as I said earlier, is like everybody's prerogative. Um, I to me, if like I was going to get conspiratorial, I of all like the conspiracies out there or not conspiracies, like interpretations of her music. The one that I find the most compelling and like not far fetched is his Wonderland. And I don't have time to get into this, nor would I do it justice. But I, I think one of the more interesting theories out there is about Wonderland and Swift Gron. If you type in that phrasing, it's going to make people mad that I'm even bringing it up. But like, 
It's about Taylor Swift and Diana Agron's friendship and their potential dynamic and how people, I think, have long wondered if there was something else going on. And I think the song Wonderland is not that far-fetched of um, an interpretation to have to do with Diana simply by way of like a tattoo she once had or former Tumblr handle and kind of the anxious way the song is describing like a kind of forbidden romance. But I think that the, I guess, does Diana have green eyes and so does Harry Styles? So that's why like people get confused with the green eye references. But anyway, it's interesting if you want to look at it. Um, Sometimes I find the conspiracies entertaining. I find that they go too far when people like start to fight about them. I'm like, take whatever you want from the song, but I don't think we need to fight about it on the internet. And that's where it starts to feel inappropriate because we will never know what any of these are absolutely about, except for maybe style, given the last name, um, and out of the woods, given the the stitches in the hospital room. I don't know. But if you're a person that can like, you know, handle speculation for a sport and not get offended if somebody implies that a song is about somebody other than who you think it's about, then like it's kind of an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Pun intended. If I were Taylor, I honestly would I it would interest me what people inferred from the lyrics and the hints I had dropped and like the social media I had shared at the paparazzi walks. Like I just I don't know. If if she is a mastermind and then the masterminds in her fandom that think they figure things out are able to you know, build these complex maps to a place she was never even going. It's just kind of an interesting study in how, like, no matter what you do, people can, like, definitively find their own truth and, like, read too much into what you're doing and what you're saying. Um, or alternatively, like, people have just figured out exactly what she designed, which is also interesting and impressive. I never really know. I think that what's hard about the internet, especially these days, the binary we operate in, it's like Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are getting married or it's like a scam, a stunt. It's PR. And it's I just am always operating in the gray somewhere in the middle. And like, that's just not a popular place to be online. And I'm like, I think they're actually dating. And I think that it behooves them both to be out in public right now. I think they show up places where they know they'll be on camera, and then there are places where they don't expect to, and you can tell from the nature of the paparazzi shots. Like, I think that you can have, uh, be a really public person and, you know, be photographed and drop clues and have pictures and hints and songs about the people you very obviously publicly dated or appeared to, and you can have had a lot of other flings and romantic entanglements going on behind the scenes that people never really would know about, and it was fair to ascertain that from your lyrics as well. I also think people's sexuality can be like fluid and it should be just casual and whatever. But people get like so worked up um, about implying different interpretations from songs. And it's just I think I'm too old and too tired now to deal with the the pushback online. So I just dip out of the conversation entirely. But I'm still lurking, always lurking. Anyway, you guys, this was fun. Maybe for me, maybe not for you. Um, And. Yeah, I'm excited to hear the vault songs. I don't know if this will come out Wednesday or Thursday, but um, I am hoping Teddy will, you know, give me a night to myself and just I can listen and record video because I love doing that with you guys. So go to patreon.com slash be there in five. Very interested to hear the vibe of Slut. You know, I'm anticipating a pretty on the nose double standard anthem a la the man, but I'm open to being pleasantly surprised. The exclamation mark. What a thrill. I mean, since me, we we haven't had that kind of punctuation. 
and interested to see what it all means. Um, and I'm really hoping for like another booming out of the woodsy track of some kind, fingers crossed. So we shall see. I can't wait. But regardless, you guys, thanks for tuning in as always. And if you want to tag me at Kate Kennedy at be there and five on Instagram, share with a friend. That's so incredibly helpful. Rating and review, rating and reviewing five stars is like the best thing you could do on Spotify. It's really quick. You just tap five stars and I would be so grateful. It's hard to keep up <laughs> in podcasting these days. So any any and all of your engagement is deeply, deeply appreciated. And yeah, I'll catch you next week. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.